Welcome to the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Jeremy Miller. Jeremy is a senior software architect at Calavista Software. Jeremy began his software career writing shadow IT applications to automate his tedious engineering documentation, then wandered into software development because it looked like more fun. So, uh, Jeremy, uh, before we kind of get into the meat of things, uh, would you uh, give our listeners maybe a little introduction to yourself, um, like tell them how you got started in the industry? Yeah, um, accident, not really accidentally. So I, I came out of school with an engineering degree, um, even though I, in retrospect, I clearly enjoyed every class where we got to write code <laughs> way more than the actual engineering. Um, and, and worked for a good engineering company, but engineering itself is pretty boring. It's a lot of paperwork. And this was right as the dot-com, the very first dot-com boom is starting to take off. So I found every possible excuse to write little software programs to automate, automate engineering work. And this is right at that magical time when they were, everything was still paper draftsman mm-hmm. and they were just barely starting to move to electronic systems. So there's just all kinds of low-hanging fruit of ways to automate things, tracking materials. Um, that was enough to teach myself classic ASP and Office VBA and a little bit of Access and Oracle. And uh, I was able to turn that into a real programming job. Uh, so I've been in .NET since the very beginning, uh, since .NET 1.0. Even, even used web forms, hated it immediately, and stayed in .NET more or less ever since. So what are you working on these days? What's like a normal day for you? Well, so um, actually kind of we're wrapping up uh, my very first ever Node.js project. <clears throat> the last couple of years with, with Calavista Software, uh, doing mostly helping clients with .NET applications, uh, a lot of integration, a lot of asynchronous messaging, retiring some tech debt, introducing automated testing. Um, about to start a, another client, real excited with client uh, in a couple of weeks, and we're going to help them. They're one of the very first adopters of Martin that we're going to talk about in a minute, and just going to help their system go a little bit better. Awesome. Awesome. So since you brought it up, what what is Martin? I know that we, we've brought you on. We're going to talk a little bit more about Martin, but uh, maybe give the listeners just a, a brief introduction as to what Martin is, what it might be used for, and wh- why it's useful. Sure. So Martin, and it's it's with an E. So Martins are little weasel-like like uh, creatures I had honestly never heard of until we called it Martin. So Martin with an E, uh, it's a client library that allows you to treat the PostgreSQL database as a document database and also as a pretty full-featured event store uh, with all the fixings. It's a very different animal, but you could almost treat the Postgres plus Martin combination as a replacement for EF Core plus SQL Server. Um, I, we can get into why it's on top of Postgres and why it's not yet on top of SQL Server later. But <clears throat> what it does is it stores, it, it takes your objects and instead of trying to map it to relational tables, 
it just serializes in JSON, shoves it in the database. So there's much less work to define what the schema is going to be. The schema changes less often. It's a lot easier to change your code. Uh, if you get into systems where your domain model is very deep, where you might have a parent order that has order details and so on and so forth, all those places where it's, it starts to get ugly and slow to do object relational mapping, with Martin, you're just stuffing JSON, serialized JSON in, um, so it becomes very fast. And on top of that, to make that useful, because it's .NET, I've got a full link provider, and then you can also treat it as an event store. Now, I, I, I'll say I grew up as a um, relational database user, started my, my programming career after I guess that battle was at least temporarily settled in the, in the 90s. Um, so I have had uh, somewhat of a difficult time reconciling when and how to use a document DB. We have uh, several applications that are actually using uh, Cosmos, and then I've also used Mongo and a few of the others, but I always find myself using them as relational databases. It is my understanding that that is not entirely correct. When would it be a good idea to use Martin over, like, say, SQL Server? Sure. Well, so it, it's it, it's really it's relational relational databases versus document database. I, I think is what you're getting at. Yeah. You know, on one hand, if your application is a lot of ad hoc reporting or reporting, um, you, you stay with relational database. You don't mess with it. If you're building off of like a CQRS kind of architecture or any kind of domain model, I think where the domain is richer, deeper, thinking like um, I've worked with financial trades in the past, and this is before we really had document databases. And the way that you model financial trades, there's so much polymorphism. There's so many relationships within one trade. Um, it's easier to, to treat that as more of a, like a structured document rather than trying to break that into rows and tables. So I think I'd be looking at what kind of problem domain you have and what your domain model is going to be. Lots of polymorphism, um, lots of deeper, deeper documents. You go with the document database. If you need to care a lot about the relationships between things, mapping, um, you know, saying a person is part of a class, is part of a teacher, relationships, that's probably more relational. A uh, document database, if you're using some kind of domain-driven design and you really have, you really can break things down into um, aggregate roots that are independent of other types of aggregate roots, then so a document database is perfect. And places where it's kind of gray in the middle, um, you know, like simpler CRUD systems, then I think it, I think I'd actually say it's preference. I still think document databases can be lower friction, but at that point, it's whatever you're most comfortable with. Well, and a lot of a lot of you know, like backend business applications tend to be that that kind of CRUD. It's just go get some stuff, put it on the screen, let some people see it. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would encourage folks to think about is, I mean, thinking about a CRUD system is remembering how much work is it to, to go through the wormhole. If you have to add one field to the database all the way to the screen, how many things do you have to do? Go add a database migration, go add the, the mapping to your ORM. If you're using Martin, if you added an extra field to an object, uh, the JSON serialization is pretty forgiving. That's it. You're done. So it just, it just kind of happens. You don't have to, there's no, um, you don't got to talk with the DBA or, or anything like that? No. 
there's another point in front of Martin. I was catching up and uh, re-familiarizing myself with Martin and, and looking at what's available and looking at the documentation on the website and watching, I think, a presentation from the .NET conference in 2018. And it looks like you gave a, a pretty good in-depth kind of getting started, if that makes any sense. So say say we've done our due diligence and we think that a document database is the way to go. Uh, we think that Martin is the, is the way to get there with our .NET Core, .NET 5 application. What does it take to, to get started with, with Martin? Well, so and the, probably, honestly, the biggest piece of friction is, are you comfortable using Postgres instead of SQL Server? And that's probably our single biggest problem with adoption. But let's, let's pretend you can get past that. Uh, at this point, with the, the latest Martin, and this is going to be extended a little bit with our, our V4 working on hard now, um, we take advantage of just pretty standard host builder extensions. Um, I think hopefully as more people are familiar using the host builder, well, you know, the older web host builder, those hooks to the, um, the, the now the standard DI registration hooks. So when you spin up your, your host builder, you'll say add Martin and a little bit of configuration from there, which the very minimal bit of configuration is going to be just the connection string to Postgres. Uh, that'll that'll do enough. That will get the necessary services injected into your DI container. That'll get the the high level document store itself. Um, if you have folks that are a little more maybe a little more familiar with in Hibernate versus EF Core, so the document store would be the equivalent of the uh, olden Hibernate session factory. And then that would also give you the ability to do a per per HP request uh, document session. Uh, that's the unit of work for Martin. So that would be a, that would actually be more analogous to either the olden Hibernate session or the uh, EF EF DB context. And all of the terminology, if folks are familiar, all the terminology was originally stolen from RavenDB. Um, we, we've gone on from there, but that's where <clears throat> Martin was originally built as a as an in-house replacement for RavenDB at a former employer. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Ayande uh, Raheen, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I haven't heard anything about Raven in a while. They're still going, as far as I know. Um, so I, I've been out of it for a couple of years. I think they're drastically improved from where it was when we deviated off. But at the time, we, we did have some trouble with it. The UMX advantage we have with Martin over what we had at the time with Raven is Postgres is completely transactional. With an exception of of uh, some eventual consistency if you're doing event sourcing. But if you save a document in Martin because it's Postgres, you can immediately turn around and start querying on that. Um, something like you guys brought up Mongo and then Raven, some of the other document databases, they have what they call eventual consistency. So the writes are committed. The reads, you got to wait for some little background processing to build up the indexes. The, the advantage, the killer advantage with, with Martin sitting on top of Postgres is it's all transactional. You can turn around and run late queries against what you just, just submitted. So that's a, a lot of problems that uh, developers have using some of those other tools that can all go away with Martin on top of Postgres. That's pretty cool. Okay, so this is a is a is more of a Postgres question, I guess. I haven't done much with Postgres. Um, is it like SQL Server where there's kind of like a, um, 
a server that's in the lead and it's the one that gets talked to. And then there's some backup servers and they only take control if the lead server goes down. The reason why Mongo is eventual consistency, right, is because it's distributed and you could get your reply from any number of Mongo servers you've written to server A, but server B might be the one that responds with the the data that you've asked for, right? Yeah, and you need to talk to a real, you're going to have to talk to a real Postgres person uh, about how how efficient the, uh, the the native Postgres sharding, I believe they can with the, the, the scaling and um, um, the Citus add-on, uh, I believe they can scale horizontally, and, and that's what we made our bet on, but um, shame on me, I'm sorry, I can't. For that. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and you had mentioned that that you've got another major release coming in coming months. Hopefully, uh, be out there soon so that we can start uh, kicking the tires and and see what the, the latest and greatest is. What what are some of those features that are that we can maybe look forward to? Well, so the alphas, alpha, there's some alphas out now. So we're working hard. the The whole Martin community and I are working hard on what will be v four. Um, it's not just new features, it's running back through almost everything it did. And we kind of redesigned a lot of the internals, um, took a shot at wherever possible, reducing object allocations, finding, just having it do less, fewer dictionary lookups, fewer object allocations, finding every possible way to do, to apply some micro optimizations to the stuff you just do all the time. On top of that, um, the biggest set of features we're working on right now. I'd originally just kind of thrown on some event sourcing functionality into it. It's kind of like, hey, this would be kind of fun. Just threw it over the side. Uh, that became popular, unfortunately. So we're scurrying around trying to make that much more robust. Um, how familiar should I assume folks are with event sourcing? Uh, why don't we spend a, just a few minutes on it and, and make sure that we've got all the listeners up to speed? Well, and then, then y'all see the challenges pretty fast. With event sourcing, instead of having like the one true model that is somehow persisted to database tables or with Martin through JSON, what you capture on the read side are the events. So we just worked on a system system for um, for a client where we did it this way. It was Node and Node in Postgres, but same concept. You're you're capturing the events, the change in status. Um, it's valuable in this case to have. It allows us to Take that raw data of, I changed this, then I committed that. It was a telehealth system. So when is a patient ready? When is When did the call start? How long did it last? So you can take all those events and you can do things like replay at two o'clock on Friday, exactly what did the state of the board look like? How long did, how long are all these calls taking on, on on average, so all this kind of statistical data, this rich data that's there by just capturing and persisting these events. And that's fine. But somebody always wants to see a, a compiled list of what does the world look like right now? What is the current state of the system? The, these events aren't very helpful. Go turn that into now a representation of the current state. Even though that's not the, the source of truth, just give me a representation of it. So all, most of the challenge is not in the initial capturing the events. It's capturing the events. And then also, let's keep up to date the read side, the projected view of the data. So we're working on really hard. Martin's had some capability for these projected views. Some To some point, you can do these either say, I want to aggregate these live. So if there's 100 events, just go make up 
just go apply these all and build me up a representation. Maybe you want to do that if you're doing lots of writes, few reads. Uh, that's something unusual that Martin does. Another unusual thing Martin does is it'll let you rebuild these events as these projected views as they come in in line. Same transaction, just using Martin documents as, as a store. That's all great. The third way is if people, hundreds of concurrent threads are updating related events and you want to keep some kind of updated view of the world, you know, maybe um, <clears throat> constant summarization of everything that's happening, everything that's current, you've got to be building asynchronous projected views. As events come in, know that they're coming in, make sure that nothing's processed out of order, making sure you're doing, you don't miss anything through the events and apply those events through to projected views in the background. So a lot of my work um, in the last couple of weeks and this week is finding ways to improve the throughput of all that stuff um, to make sure it doesn't lose data, uh, doesn't get out of order. Um, the big one for us, we've had this capability, but it was 100% on you to make sure that it only ran on one box. So any, you know, any legitimate system is going to be clustered. So designing up a system where we could look at the projected views, maybe find ways to split it out. Maybe you're doing it by tenant, by some other kind of thing, and do some leader election where you can spread work across your cluster and then also be able to fail. If something goes down, make sure it fails over without ever coming out of sync. So that's, that's where all the challenge for Martin V4 is at this moment. Okay, some some of what you were talking about reminded me of a database I heard uh, about a while ago called Datomic. I don't think he used the term event sourced, but um, he would basically return these little, I think he called them atoms or something, but he like when you would say change this record in the database, it wouldn't update the record, it would just add a change event, and then the database would compile the change events to get the current state. One of the selling points was that for debug purposes, if you knew that at 3.23 and 18 seconds on Friday morning, there was an issue that happened in production and you want to reproduce that issue because you know what event was fired that triggered the issue and you know when that happened. You could basically snapshot the database at that exact point in time, run the event through, and then debug the, um, the error. Is something like that possible with uh, V4? Yes. Uh well, it is with V3. It'll just be way better with V4. Yes, um, not to the extent that you're talking about, uh, there's an add-on for Postgres called Timescale uh, that will give you that exact same kind of capability at a Postgres level that's more generic. But with Martin, um, and then this is something, um, I was part of a startup that used event sourcing um, to, uh, it was to have better governance over operating rooms. So recording all the events of the doctors ready, the, the patients at this point, um, and, and be able to take all those events and show you the board of what did the operating board look like. <laughs> but take all that data and say, what did it look like at 2 p.m. on Friday when things started to go really slow and we started getting delays in the operating room? And by moving it forward and backwards and even playing it, you could allow an anesthesiologist to kind of suss out where did we systematically go wrong? Why did these delays start creeping in? So yeah, event sourcing is perfect for that, that kind of historical analysis like you're talking about. Okay. 
That's awesome. That was one of the things I wanted to look at with that that uh, Datomic database, but it cost lots of money and Ugh. it wasn't for my language. So, <laughs> well, and again, there's um, time scale. Time scale with Postgres would I don't think I don't know if it works the exact same way, but time scale would let you do temporal querying against against the Postgres. Okay. You had mentioned uh, the struggles uh, for getting this to work with um, Microsoft SQL. Um, would you like to elaborate on those a little bit? Yeah, because um, it's just it's inevitable we'd ask or, or somebody helpfully points out of you know people would use this more if you put it on SQL Server. <laughs> it's kind of like we know. So Postgres is way out in front of every other database with uh, with their JSON features. I think at some point, hopefully in the next year or two, we'll have a version of Martin that runs a subset on, on SQL Server. But Postgres has a really unusual data type they call JSONB that stores JSON, really parse JSON in a binary format. So it's faster to search through, um, probably takes up less space. Um, on top of that, uh, you can run JavaScript inside of Postgres. Uh, so we do have some capabilities in Martin where you could use use JavaScript either to do documentation transforms or, I mean, here's a funny one. Did any of y'all use Automapper or anything like that in your .NET work? Yep. Okay, so I'm about to make fun of it. Um, sorry, Jimmy. Um, <laughs> so you think about the work, think about the work you do today to write a web service. Say it's you're backed by EF Core and you're using Automapper and all that good stuff. So you issue your HP request, and what you have to do is reach into EF Core, and it's got to go get a bunch of related related data, spin it up into those objects. Then you're going to take AutoMapper on those objects and put it into different DTO objects, and then finally serialize the whole shebang down to JSON and down the HTTP pipeline. So with Martin, um, in some places, especially especially like projective views of the EF, if the JSON document is close, it at least has all the data you want. What you could do is fetch one JSON data document, but don't fetch the real thing. Um, you can apply a JavaScript function inside the database to transform it in one shot to exactly the representation you want to go over the wire. Um, and then don't even serialize it. Just grab the JSON, let Postgres give you the transform JSON that you want and shoot that right down the HP pipeline. Um, one feature we've talked about for years, we haven't built yet in V4, but I swear we will this time. We'll have a feature where you can do that, but don't even bother going to, to string, the JSON string. Just let it stream byte array right down to the HP response. And that way we'll give you a vastly more efficient read side uh, HP web service than you could possibly get with that. EF core spinning up and auto mapper and then serializing. That sounds cool. Yeah, very cool. And you've mentioned a couple times that that it's you and the team and, and the community. Martin's an open source project. Is that correct? It's an open source project at MIT. So we have a very active. When you find us on on GitHub, you'll find links. Um, we have a very active Gitter Gitter room. You can ask questions on GitHub itself. We're using GitHub, uh, the the new discussion group stuff on GitHub, like that. Uh, but there's a Gitter room that's really active. There's myself and there's three other core team members. I'm going to let you go look them up. I butcher their names too badly. 
but the important thing there is, no, it's not just me. It, it, it is a community. A lot of contributors right now, we've had over 100 contributors all told. You know, and that's that's a huge number for a .NET project. So in addition to Martin, do you have a lot of open source projects that you work with or work on? Are you in charge of multiple different projects? I think you had mentioned another GitHub IO page uh, for Jasper. Yeah, so I'll run it down super fast. Um, so I'm probably best known, for better or for worse, for Structure Map. That was, once upon a time, was the original production IOC tool for .NET. Uh, that's been passed by years ago. Um, I've got a project called Lamar that is um, that's a next generation successor to Structure Map to get people off Structure Map. A couple other tools, um, a command line parser called Oakton, a tool for testing testing HP contract testing on .NET called Alba. That's a wrapper on test server makes makes uh, a lot of testing scenarios easier. But other than Martin, the, the biggest project I'm working on, have for years, is something called Jasper. So Jasper is, it, it was originally meant to be another open source service bus model. But I think, I feel like it has a very strong in-memory command processing model. I would say it's probably analogous to, to Brighter or Mass Transit or in service bus. But used completely in, in memory, it could also be used as... Um, it can be used as a superset of that really popular mediator library where people don't like to have so much functionality um, embedded into their MVC controllers. Jasper, at the very least, can do that. It just it does a lot more stuff after that for running commands. Mentioning Automapper and Mediator in the same conversation. I think Jimmy Bogart's going to jump out of the screen <laughs> at some point. Well, so years ago, uh, four or five years ago, um, actually a bunch of us were at a, a little one-off project um, conference in Dallas. And um, I, I'd gone upstairs. There's just two talks, one upstairs and one downstairs. And when I went upstairs, they were actually kind of making fun of, of uh, an older OSS project that I did called Fubu MVC that, that failed. Um, I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> and I just got, ah, it's kind of frustrating. And I walked down and Jimmy Bogard was doing like an experience report on, on Automapper. And the very first thing I hear him say is, I made, this is one of the worst mistakes I made with Automapper. See, I took this idea from, from Jeremy Miller and Structure Map. <laughs> and <laughs> he was right. He, he was definitely right. <laughs> Sorry about that, Jimmy. But, um, so I know that there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter and, and those types of platforms recently about the speed with which .NET Framework Core development is progressing and or not progressing. So some, some people say it's uh, it's too fast for them to keep up. Some say it's it's too slow, that there's not enough innovation happening. W what are your thoughts on that? And are there features that, that you're utilizing in, in the latest and greatest .NET releases? Are there things that you, you're thankful that, that we have now? Are there things that you're still looking forward to? Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to say, well, first of all, I do, unless, unless the client is using a really old version of .NET, I'm doing almost all of my .NET development using JetBrains Writer, um, using a Mac. Huh. It's pretty rare for me to fire up my Windows VM. So being cross-platform, that's pretty cool. Um, and then we've got an opinionated DevOps guy who 
would probably whine outrageously if he had to use Windows. So being able to run on Linux clusters. What I would tell you, the biggest thing from .NET Core, besides being, being cross-platform, as much as I hated them for what they did at first, a lot of those very bedrock abstractions, we talked about the, the generic host builder. Um, now having one standardized way, I don't know that everybody's using it, but we're going to get there. Having roughly one standardized way to bootstrap up an application, to apply configuration. The configuration model that came in .NET Core, I, I think, is much stronger. I think it's a huge improvement over what they had before. That's advantageous. But having that standardized, and I cursed the Microsoft people for the standard DI abstractions they did. They didn't talk to any of us. They didn't run it by anybody. They just <laughs> threw it out there and expected all of us to conform to it. I'm mostly over being angry. Um, that's been extremely advantageous. So now the, the, the generic host builder, uh, things like the hosted service model, having a way to just throwing in things into a container, having a way to say, I want this little side remnant process to be started up and shut down cleanly as the app goes up and down. So that kind of standardization, people being familiar with that. Now, when you talk about something like Martin, and we finally just build it straight into Martin. Martin has extensions right off of the service collection to whatever kind of .NET Core application you're building, whether it's a web service, whether you're running a service worker. As long as you're using that host builder kind of model, you have a quick way to just say, add Martin, use Martin. Hmm. And it's idiomatic. It's the same way, roughly the same way you'd use EF Core. Um, today, even things like mass transit, I assume in service bus, Instead of having their own, being their own framework, and now you have to have a Martin plugin specific for in-service bus, a Martin plugin to integrate it with, with mass transit. Now, if we're all standardized on that service, service collection, the host builder, it's much easier for us to build things that are more, I think, are more approachable for more .NET developers by standardizing how things are pieced together. Even though I was not necessarily happy about how they went about it at first. I think it's hugely advantageous. Yeah, no, the the early releases weren't nearly as feature complete or even approaching parity on framework. With .NET Core 3.1, I think we, we got most of the way there. And now with the reunification for .NET 5 and the LTS version, uh, hopefully this fall for .NET 6, I think we're, we're in pretty good shape. And it stopped, it's stable. Um, it, it was it was a nightmare. The OSS projects I had that targeted uh, like very early Net Standard One, Net Core 1.0, the abstractions changed so much version to version. Mm -hmm. And this time, going from 3.1 to the new .NET 5.0, um, it, it wasn't completely painless, but it, it wasn't that bad. So I think think we finally arrived. Um, we just need to get everybody to stop using old versions. So what, what uh, resources might you point people to uh, that maybe are looking to uh, get started with Martin or get, uh, utilize Jasper? Uh, anything else we've talked about? Uh, so the Martin website, uh, martindb.io, uh, we think is pretty complete. Did just go through the exercise of asking lots of people, what would it take you to use Martin? And uh, Apparently, my web design skills aren't that great. So <laughs> someone else is doing a redesign of the website. But I think the contents, the contents all there. The biggest thing, if you're going to use, if you're going to use Postgres, 
Um, I'd really encourage people to be at least comfortable enough with Docker um, that you could use. I, I think we've got some sample Docker Compose files. Don't try to deploy Docker on your own box or anything. Just just run it in Docker, shut it up and down. Uh, and we have, there's images that'll have that, uh, the uh, PLV8 um, add-on for the JavaScript support, which isn't mandatory, but it kind of trips people up. Get comfortable with Docker and that'll make spinning up and shutting down uh, Postgres real, real easy. Um, I hope that Martin makes it really easy that you can just get in and start playing without worrying too much about database migrations and all kinds of silliness. So the website, Docker, uh, that's where I'd go from there. Awesome. I do love me some Docker. Uh, what would you say has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Sure. Um, so things that, that have helped me, I mean, there, there's a time element to this, but I would say if you can, do some kind of side project, um, especially if it's something you can be kind of passionate about, something that makes you stretch your skills. Um, don't don't go running, you know, don't go learn five languages and write a to-do app for five new languages. Do something that's going to challenge you and stretch. You know, beyond that, I think I would say try to focus on the fundamentals, um, fundamentals of design, fundamentals of OO, or now now functional programming, the kind of conceptual things that that generally carry you between between languages or even new tooling, new tools. And wherever you get the chance, try to put yourself self in a position where you're around other developers that around other developers that enjoy software development. It's just easier to learn if you can do a little bit of osmosis, just being around people that are interested and want to talk about it. Uh, wh where can our listeners go to uh, keep up with you and maybe just uh, find out what you're working on? So I'm not the prolific blogger I was years ago on CodeBetter, but you can find me today on uh, jeremydmiller.com. Um, try to blog as much much there as I can once, once in a while. Um, starting to throw a few blog posts up for uh, Cala Vista um, as I can. And, and um, my coworkers will remind me I'm really late with the blog <laughs> post right now. But uh, I'm about to, throw a big, about to throw a big blog post up on, uh, you know, going back, what is test-driven development? How is it different from behavior-driven development um, and other, other double Ds? Cool. Sounds like a good one. Well, all right. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Well, guys, thanks for having me on. Thanks for reaching out. That was Jeremy Miller. Jeremy is a senior software architect at Calavista Software. Jeremy began his software career writing shadow IT applications to automate his tedious engineering documentation, then wandered into software development because it looked like more fun. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And be sure to catch us live each week on Twitch and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.